You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. This episode of DNA ID is sponsored by GEDmatch, the free genealogy website where you can learn about your ancestry and find family members you're related to through DNA, not to mention help catch the bad guys we talk about in every episode. It was 1976. January 12th was a freezing cold night in Woodridge, Illinois. And that Monday night was a school night for 16-year-old Pam Maurer. But that didn't stop Pam from wanting to hang out with her circle of close friends. Siblings Kathy, Dennis, and Peggy Robertson were tight with Pam, and they lived just two blocks away. So Pam and her friend Dale left the Maurer house at 7638 Butternut Court on foot to head to the Robertsons. The next thing Pam's mom, Betty Maurer, knew, Pam's friends were calling the Maurer home and looking for Pam. But Pam wasn't there, and her friends at the Robertsons didn't know where she was. Neighborhood searches for her turned up nothing. By 11.45 p.m., Betty and Louis Maurer were very concerned. Betty called the Woodridge PD and told them her daughter was missing. Pam's parents spent a restless night listening to the police scanner, hoping against hope that they would hear good news. It was not to be. At 7.27 a.m. on the snowy morning of January 13th, a man named Thomas Patterman was driving to work along College Road in suburban Lyle. Patterman was the Lyle Township Highway Commissioner, so as he was driving, he was more attuned than most to the state of the roadway and its surrounding areas. As he cruised east, he saw something on the west side of the road. It looked like a woman's purse. Patterman pulled a Yui and stopped along the guardrail, and there, lying on the cold ground just on the other side of the guardrail, he saw the body of a fully clothed female, snow softly landing on the corpse. He called the authorities and directed first responders to the location where the body lay in the snow. A responding officer from Lyle PD and a whole slew of firefighters showed up at the scene. The girl, for she was a girl, lying on the ground outside the guardrail, was declared dead, the presumed victim of a hit-and-run. Her body was transported to Edward Hospital for an autopsy. Sorting through her purse, which sat on the roadside, police found the victim's ID. The Lyle PD was not aware of the missing persons report filed in Woodridge the night before, but Pam was not missing for very long. The Mowers received a phone call from the Lyle police that there had been an accident. Lewis needed to come down and identify his daughter. Rigor mortis was evident and marked facial lividity was present when Pam's body was transported to the hospital. Her body was partially frozen, indicating she had been dead for quite some time. At the autopsy, the DuPage County coroner concluded that Pam had died from manual strangulation. Pam had been found lying face down in the snow. The lower section of one of her legs was actually still up on top of the guardrail. She was fully clothed but for one brown suede shoe which was found right near her body. She was still wearing a plaid coat with a fur-trimmed hood, and the strangulation marks observed by the pathologist did not fully encircle her throat. They were just on the front of her throat. This seemed to imply that she was strangled while her hood was up. And indeed, her clothing did not appear to have been disarranged, as the Lyle Police Chief M.J. Worth put it. The pathologist collected a vaginal smear, debris from Pam's right hand, head and pubic hair standards, and some fibers that were found on her clothing. The clothing itself, including her faded glory jeans, pastel patterned t-shirt, zippered black hoodie and jacket, blue socks, multicolored underwear, and white bra, 
were all kept in sealed evidence containers. Pam's autopsy report from back in 1976 reflects somewhat dated conceptions on the part of the pathologist. He determined that Pam had not been raped because she had no visible injuries other than the strangulation marks. There were, quote, no signs of force, end quote, and because there was no, quote, gross observation, end quote, of semen in Pam's vagina. But seminal fluid was detected on the vaginal swab and later on her underwear. The autopsy report concluded that Pam had had what was believed to be consensual sex before her death. This led investigators scratching their heads over a possible motive for her murder. But as we now know, many rapes do not result in physical manifestations of forced intercourse. Dr. Hillary McElligott, the current chief forensic pathologist in the DuPage County Coroner's Office, reviewed the autopsy report in 2019 with a modern perspective. She stated that lack of physical evidence of forceful sexual contact did not rule out rape. And if it was correct that there was little to no semen inside the vagina, the sexual contact could have been post-mortem, or the suspect could have masturbated on Pam without penetration, resulting in the semen in her underwear. Pam had almost certainly been sexually assaulted. Based on Pam's stomach contents, the pathologist placed the time of death at sometime between 10 p.m. and midnight, most likely right around 10.30. As I said, Pam's large brown leather purse was found in the roadway. It's what drew the attention of Mr. Patterman. Here are the contents of Pam's handbag. A copper bracelet, a mirror, mascara brushes, a tube of eyeshadow, an eyeliner, a Boy Scout knife engraved with Pam's last name on both sides, makeup compacts, a tube of lotion, a bottle of liquid makeup, a tube of lipstick, a fingernail file, a bottle of perfume, a bottle of Vaseline, a pair of tweezers, a kazoo, a skate wrench, a towelette, a keychain with a compass on it, a blue Bic pen, a small screwdriver, a hairbrush, a bottle of balsam lotion, several packs of paper matches, an empty bottle of Daytrill, a sucrets box, a bottle of liquid labeled white label scotch whiskey, miscellaneous papers and notes, a pack of Winston cigarettes menthol extra long with just one cigarette left. In the coin section of Pam's blue suede wallet were crammed all the following items. Two gold barrettes, a $5 bill, a penny and a dime, a house key, three rubber bands, six safety pins, a guitar pick, a library card, a school hall pass, a metrics conversion card, a paper with song lyrics, and a school newspaper subscription receipt. Let's talk about who Pam was. Pam was born on October 24, 1959, to parents Betty Ann and Louis Maurer. The family eventually numbered six, with Pam's siblings Charles, who was 18, Patrick, 14, and Susan, 12. When she was killed, Pam was in her junior year at Downers Grove South High School. She was described as friendly, but quiet and shy with people she didn't know. She didn't participate in any extracurriculars at school. Pam was going through a bit of a rebellious stage. She was tardy or even missed school altogether quite a bit. School records showed that she had been subject to discipline more than once, including a suspension after an incident involving a small fire. I was told that this wasn't a big deal. Pam wasn't trying to burn down the school. It was a small trash can fire. After reading the files, I got the impression that Pam wasn't a bad girl, but she was a typical teen acting out and expressing her independence, bucking the rules. Her friends said Pam smoked and drank a little bit, like many 16-year-olds, but she wasn't sexually active. Her boyfriend, Harold, known as Hal, backed this up. He said they weren't intimate and spent most of their time hanging out with other teens. We often hear that the victim's friends and family say, oh, she would never have accepted a ride from a stranger. Well, most of Pam's friends said that about their somewhat shy friend as well. But one did say if a cute guy drove up in a nice car, Pam might have gotten in, especially on a cold night like the one on which she died. It was hard for investigators to know what to believe and what theory to pursue. When Pam's body was found, her siblings were called down to their school office and told to go home. As I said, Louis, her father, was called and requested to come down to the morgue to identify his daughter's body, the supposed victim of a hit-and-run. But within hours, the autopsy had revealed that Pam had actually been murdered. Funeral services were held for Pam at Grace Baptist Church in Downers Grove, and she was laid to rest at Chapel Hill Gardens in Elmhurst. 
Meanwhile, police struggled to find a motive. Remember, they believed Pam had not been raped, since the coroner's report seemed to conclude that she hadn't been sexually assaulted. And money was found in her purse, so robbery wasn't a motive either. Police went to work trying to figure out who Pam had been hanging out with that night and who in her life might have wanted her dead. Today, we want to tell you about how you can get involved in solving some of these cases that you've been hearing about on our show. Many of you are probably familiar with GEDmatch. I mention it in pretty much every episode. It's a free genealogy website where you can learn about your ancestry and find family members you're related to through DNA, even if you've tested using different companies. It's also one of the sites used by law enforcement to solve the Golden State Killer case in 2018, and since then has been involved in 500 or more other cases. It is also not used for just violent crimes like murders and sexual assault, but also for identifying John and Jane Doe's and exonerating innocent people who were put away for the wrong reasons. If you've already done a DNA test with a direct-to-consumer testing company like 23andMe, Ancestry, MyHeritage, or FamilyTreeDNA, it's easy to upload to GEDmatch and help law enforcement with genetic tips and leads. I'm going to walk you through it. First, go to the company website where you have had your DNA testing done and download your profile as a DNA data file. Next, go to GEDmatch and upload the file to GEDmatch for processing. Make sure to choose to opt in for law enforcement searches that cover violent crime and missing persons cases. If you want to focus on being helpful to finding identities for unidentified bodies, you can just opt out, which will exclude your profile from violent crime case searches. Within 24 hours of this upload, you'll have access to a suite of DNA tools, allowing you to delve deeper into your results. Compare your DNA to everyone on the site or to a specific person, or find matches that are related to two different people, plus much more. Some people think that law enforcement gets access to your raw DNA when you upload your profile. This is not true. Law enforcement does not get to see your raw DNA data when you consent to allow your data to be included in those types of searches. They have the same access as any other civilian user of GEDmatch. They can only see your name or GEDmatch alias if you've entered one, email address, and how much shared DNA there is between you and the unknown profile uploaded. GEDmatch is a highly secure site built with consumer security in mind, where users are in control of information they upload and can delete their data whenever they want. By joining the GEDmatch community, you can help see violent criminals brought to justice, missing people located, and unidentified bodies given a name. Join GEDmatch today. Make sure you use GEDmatch.com slash DNA ID. That's GEDmatch.com slash DNA ID. Let's go back a bit and discuss how the investigation unfolded. Woodridge police receiving the 911 call about a missing local teen close to midnight on January 12th tried to assure Betty Maurer that her daughter would turn up. It was a small town, a more innocent time, and teenagers were late for their curfew or ran away far, far more often than they were the victims of violent crime. The WPD did dispatch some patrol cars out to drive the streets and advised officers to be on the lookout for a missing teenage girl. They found nothing, until Mr. Patterman drove along College Road the next morning and found Pam lying in the snow. Because she was found next to the roadway, police initially assumed Pam was the victim of a hit-and-run. The first responders had assumed they were looking at a vehicle versus pedestrian accident, so the area had not been treated as a crime scene. The EMTs, firefighters, and rookie officer had tromped all over the place. No one even took any photos of the body in place. They just stuck a stick in the ground to mark the spot where she lay. Once the autopsy determined that Pam was a victim of a homicide, investigators returned to the scene to conduct a more thorough inspection. And they found something. A two-and-a-half-foot-long piece of rubber hose was lying on the ground near where Pam's body had been. It matched with three marks and bruises the pathologist had observed on the front of the girl's throat. Pam had not succumbed to manual strangulation after all. She had been asphyxiated by someone using the hose as a ligature. Police Chief M.J. Worth said that the hose had been sent for testing to confirm that it was the murder weapon. He was fairly certain that it was, given that the autopsy report had concluded that Pam had been strangled, and the size of the hose matched the marks on Pam's throat. Police were hopeful that the hose would lead them directly to the killer. The two-and-a-half-foot length of rubber hose was one-half-inch-wide automotive gasoline hose that looked brand new. 
It had distinctive patterns on it that might help identify its source, and it had a serial number stamped on it. Chief Worth voiced confidence that this crime would be solved, and investigators set about tracking down the origin of the hose. They visited local automotive stores, gas stations, and repair shops to inquire about recent purchases of this specific hosing. But it turned out this was a very common type of hose used in many engine varieties and sold in multiple area stores. There was no way to determine where it had come from, much less who had purchased it. It's unclear why the killer made the decision to chuck the piece of hose out of his car into the snow with Pam's body. But investigators were pretty sure that is what happened. Pam had not been killed where she was found, but driven to that location and dumped. A contemporary report by Lyle Detective Schultz says, quote, The location of the murder is undetermined at this point, end quote. Investigators suspected that Pam had either gotten into or been forced into a vehicle and driven somewhere where she was killed. Then she was dumped on the side of College Road and the killer possibly tried to make it look like a hit and run, planting Pam's purse on the side of the road and her body with the shoe on the other side of the guardrail. The guardrail didn't run the length of the road, it was just on that curve. Perhaps the killer was thinking that it would appear that a car skidded on the curve or didn't see the curve in the dark, and Pam got hit. So detectives were eager to figure out what happened to Pam and how she had come to be dead on the side of the road when she had last been known to be hanging out at the Robertson's house with a group of teenagers. They started interviewing everyone Pam had been hanging out with on the last night of her life and her wider circle of friends and acquaintances. Here's the timeline they established for the night of April 12th. Around 7.30 p.m., Pam's best friend, 18-year-old Dale D., had come over to her house to hang out with her and play cards. She made herself some dinner, and they played cards for a bit, but then they wanted to go to the Robertsons. That was the house the kids generally hung out at. According to what the police learned, the Robertson home had little parental supervision, and people were constantly coming and going. Police reports reflect that the house was full of animals, including several birds and a monkey. It was kind of wild kingdom over there. At the Robertsons, there were several teens present on that particular night. Kathy, Dennis, and Peggy Robertson were there, Dale and Pam, and another kid named Steve. Also at the house was 30-year-old Alice S., who lived with the family. According to what the kids told the cops later, there was no drinking or anything like that. Pam ate candy and drank a Coke. But around 9.45, she decided to go out. The kids at the time told police that Pam wanted to go out and buy herself a Coke. They all told this story. But much later, in fact decades later, one of her friends, Peggy, admitted to modern investigators that actually Pam was on a quest to buy cigarettes. The kids all fudged the truth to the investigators so as not to get Pam in trouble. Of course, this made much more sense than Pam leaving on a snowy night to get a soda. No one's that desperate to get a Coke. And police were able to determine that there was an ample supply of pop at the house already. Pam didn't need to go out to get some. Pam decided she was going to walk to a nearby commercial establishment to buy some smokes, which were available everywhere in vending machines back then. According to her friend Dale, Pam asked if anyone wanted to go with her, but no one did. Then, as she was leaving, some of the kids relented and offered to go along, but she said she was fine walking alone. It wasn't far. The Robertson's home at 2527 Crabtree Avenue was in a residential area on a cul-de-sac in a family-oriented neighborhood. But the cul-de-sac was mere yards away from busy commercial Jane's Avenue, where the major intersection with 75th Street featured gas stations, a 7-Eleven, a laundromat, and a McDonald's, which is still there. The laundromat at Woodridge Plaza was definitely the shortest walk from the Robertsons, as it was on the Crabtree side of Jane's Avenue. It had vending machines on site, and it would have taken Pam mere minutes to get there. The only road she would have had to cross was Larchwood Avenue. The problem was, as police tried to retrace Pam's steps, the kids all had different ideas about where exactly she was headed as she walked out the door. Dennis Robertson told police Pam said she was heading to a vending machine at the laundromat she used, just down the street. As she left, though, Pam told Kathy she was getting the cigarettes at the McDonald's. And Peggy told police it was her impression that Pam was headed to the 7-Eleven at 75th and Jane's. Wherever she was going, Pam walked out the door alone at 945 and Dennis could see through the front window that she was indeed walking in the direction of 75th and Jane's. 
she never came back. Pam's friends all reported that she had said she would be right back. When she didn't return, they started wondering where she'd gone. Perhaps she'd popped over to see her boyfriend, Hal, who lived on Forest Glen. Or maybe she'd gone home. The Robertson kids decided to call over to the Maurer house to see if Pam was there. Betty Ann Maurer took the call from the friends looking for Pam, and since it was by now close to 11 o'clock, there was cause for some alarm. Betty Ann got in her car and drove over to the Robertsons' house. One of Pam's friends got in the car with her, and they started driving around looking for Pam. Pam's remaining friends were concerned, too, and they got in their own cars and drove to the laundromat, the McDonald's, and the 7-Eleven. They also checked the Marathon and Texaco stations at that same intersection. But it was 11 p.m., and all those places were closed. They returned home scared and worried. The kids with Pam at the Robertsons that night later told police that Pam had not gone to meet anyone. She just intended to pick up some smokes, they said a soda, and come right back. Whoever she did meet up with, it was not a planned event. So as I said, police spent a lot of time trying to determine whether Pam had made it to the quick wash laundromat or had actually continued across Jane's Avenue to the 7-Eleven or had gone farther still, crossing 75th Street to the McDonald's. They needed to know exactly where her killer had intercepted her. Investigators interviewed several people who were at the laundromat that night. One was Ed Elhard, the laundromat maintenance man. He and his girlfriend arrived at the quick wash on the night of January 12th around 9.45 p.m. The laundromat closed at 10. Pam would just have barely had time to get there before its doors locked for the night. Ed told the investigators about two regular customers who were at the laundromat that night, neither of whom was Pam. He and his girlfriend set to work cleaning the place, mopping the floors, wiping down the machines, and so on. He never saw a teenage girl come in before the doors locked automatically from the inside at 10. He left at 10.15, and never saw anyone other than the two regulars washing their clothes. This seems to imply that Pam never made it to the laundromat, and a McDonald's cup with a lid had been found on College Road near her body. Police didn't know whether it was connected to the case or not, but it tended to point to her having gone to the McDonald's. But wait. Police tracked down the male laundromat patron, a regular named Dallas H. Dallas arrived there at 8.30 p.m., He told police that he observed two females walking into the laundromat at the same time and not speaking to each other. One was the girlfriend of the maintenance man. The other was unremarkable except that she appeared to be a teenager and she was wearing a coat with fur on the hood. She headed straight back to the vending machine area. He didn't see what she bought, but she left right away after being in the building for less than two minutes. It had to be Pam. The police interviewed everyone they could locate at the other two locations she could have gone to that night, the 7-Eleven and the McDonald's, and no one recalled seeing her. Ed, the maintenance man, hadn't seen her, but it was theoretically possible that she had slipped in the door, headed straight to the vending machine room, and slipped back out, undetected by the busy cleaner. She was wearing a coat with fur-trimmed hood that night, just as described by Dallas. Detective Schultz's report states, quote, It has been determined through investigation and interviews that Pam did arrive at the laundromat alone and left alone, end quote. He noted that the laundromat was a mere seven-minute walk from the Robertsons. During Pam's seven-minute walk back, someone abducted her. Pam's body was found a half-mile south of Illinois Benedictine College in Lyle, now called Benedictine University. This was just a little more than five miles from the Robertson's Crabtree Avenue house, maybe a 10-minute drive. At the time, the area was termed remote. Presumably, the killer selected a dumping spot where no one would notice his car stopped along the roadway as he set the scene. Police conducted the obligatory interviews with all Pam's friends, focusing on the kids who were there that night, as well as her boyfriend and an ex. No one could think of anyone who would want to hurt her. She didn't have bad blood with anyone. She wasn't going to meet up with anyone. She had just gone to find a vending machine and vanished. Pam's friend Dale was someone investigators wanted to talk to. He was described by some of Pam's female friends as always bitter and angry with a temper. No girls would date him because of his bad attitude. He drove a beater car and was always working on it. Perhaps he had access to rubber hosing, police thought. 
Dale had left the Robertsons shortly after Pam. He could easily have run into her walking, and somehow they could have ended up in a car in Lyle. And he didn't have much of an alibi. He'd gone home, ate a burger, and watched TV, he said. Spoiler. In 2019, Dale was eliminated after giving a voluntary DNA sample to the modern investigators who cracked this case. Police also pulled Pam's boyfriend Hal in for an interview and asked about his activities that evening. He told them that he and his sister were both grounded and were home with their mom that night. He hadn't been at the Robertsons and he hadn't seen Pam. When pressed, he became defensive and seemed nervous, according to detectives' notes. He denied having anything to do with Pam's death a number of times. And then, when they started asking about his sexual habits for unknown reasons, he lawyered up and terminated the interview. Once his family retained an attorney, Hal was advised not to talk to the police. He was kept on the suspect list because he would no longer cooperate, and his alibi was his mom, not always the most solid. But police noted that Hal didn't have a car. He would have had to have used someone else's vehicle to transport Pam to where she was found. Hal was backburnered. Then there was a schoolmate Pam had dated before Hal, a guy named Jerry C. Police were interested in talking to Jerry because his first name was tattooed on Pam's arm in a self-inflicted tat she had scratched on herself, although it was barely visible any longer. If she felt strongly enough about him to do that, perhaps she would have eagerly climbed into his car on the night she died, police thought. But Jerry told them that he and Pam dated during her sophomore year, his junior year, for only a month. They were never intimate, and it freaked him out when she gave herself the tattoo of his name. He said he was appalled when she showed it to him. It was one of the reasons they broke up. He decided that the kind of girl who would do that was not one he wanted to date. Another reason they broke up was because she pushed him into the lockers at school and pulled his hair. He was small for his age and didn't care for being shoved around by his girlfriend. Jerry, who was only five foot six or so and skinny, was not of particular interest to the police. Some of the kids' interviews revealed a potential clue. Investigators were intrigued by statements from some of the kids at the Robertsons that night about a car that drove down their street around the time Pam would have been walking back from the laundromat. Around 10.15 p.m., some kids had reported seeing a blue Volkswagen with Illinois tags circle the cul-de-sac on Crabtree. This lead went nowhere when the driver turned out to be local kid James B., who said he was on that street in his Volvo because he was driving his date home to her house across the street. James knew Pam, but he didn't know her well at all. And his story panned out, so this lead fizzled. But this next bit of information did become very important to police. An incident on the same night Pam died led police to believe her killer had attempted to abduct another woman. An unnamed young woman was in the parking lot of the Four Lakes apartment complex around 11.45 p.m. on the night Pam was killed. This was less than two miles from where Pam was found the next day. The young woman was approached by a young man in a car who asked her to model for him. But the would-be victim noticed a large white bundle in the front seat of the man's car, and she felt he was trying to hide something. She declined his request, feeling nervous, and he drove off. The witness was able to work with a police sketch artist to produce a composite image of the man she saw. The sketch showed a white male, 5 foot 9 inches tall, mid-twenties, brown hair, medium build. He was driving what she thought was a newer model, Mercury Capri. Investigators were quickly stumped. Other than this potentially but not necessarily related report about the guy in the Capri, there were no standout suspects or obvious persons of interest in Pam's case. As a result, Chief Worth told the media a week after the murder, everyone's a suspect. Well, that changed by early February. Lyle police announced that they had two 17-year-old male suspects in their sights and expected them to be called to testify before a grand jury. None of these young men were ever named publicly, much less charged. And modern investigators have no idea who these two were or what happened with the grand jury. Detective Chris Loudon of the Lyle PD, who solved this case, told me that there are no records in the case file about any of this. No true bill was ever handed down, and there's no way for us to know what suspects the grand jury was investigating. That's a good lead-in for this next bit. It has to be said that the original investigators did not take ample notes or keep complete records of what they were doing at the time. 
there are a lot of references in the case file to names and incidents that are never mentioned again. It was a very, very frustrating situation for modern investigators trying to piece together the 40-plus-year-old case. But in general, it seems from what we now know that the original investigators focused on people who knew Pam as potential suspects. They believed, based on the coroner's report, that she willingly had sex with someone before she was killed. And I think they believed that someone she knew drove up as she walked along and offered her a ride. It was January in Illinois. It was cold. She probably would have gotten into a warm car with someone she was familiar with, which was a lot of people in the small town of Woodridge. 1976 Lyle police started trying to understand all the relationships among the teens of Woodridge. They looked at the wider circle of kids who tended to hang out at the Robertson home, kids named Larry and Dan and Steve and another Dan. They looked at other neighborhood kids as well. For example, the Hansons lived across the street from the Robertsons and had two older teen sons, initials M and J. They were described by several witnesses as drug addicts, creeps, and weirdos. And of course, the location of their home made them targets of the investigation. Other young men who were looked at extensively were the Sloan brothers, R and K, whose family lived behind the Robertson home. The Robertsons considered the Sloans an extended family. Cecil Sloan was the father who owned the Texaco station at 75th and Jane's, and both his sons, K and R, worked there, along with a bunch of other local kids. Pam and her friends would often hang out at the Texaco station, although Mr. Sloan would eventually kick them out if they were just loitering and weren't working there or buying something. The point is, all these kids knew each other, and police had to sort out who knew Pam and who might have harmed her. They also had to sort through and debunk all sorts of rumors. For example, there were whispers of feuds and fighting among various teen groups. According to some of the kids, Pam was involved in some of these altercations. It was pretty normal teenage stuff, but it had to be followed up on in case someone bore an outsized grudge against petite Pam. Eventually, original investigators focused on a Michael Basso, age 19. He came across their radar when they received tips that he had confessed while drunk in a local bar. His girlfriend Nancy reported that he had confessed to killing Pam. A guy named Kevin also reported that Jim, Mike's brother, had told him that Mike killed Pam. Basso was of particular interest to police because he worked at the Sloan Texaco, and he had a criminal record, a drug habit, and a violent streak. This from the police reports, quote, A DuPage County Sheriff's deputy named Don Brock also worked at the Sloan Texaco station around the time of Pam's murder. He knew the Basso boys as well. He viewed the hose suspected as the murder weapon and confirmed that it was consistent with the fuel line hose that was on a spindle outside the office at the station, end quote. Police were thinking that Basso could have been at the gas station that night and seen Pam walking along. When they aggregated all this information, Basso became a prime suspect. He agreed to talk to them and denied having any involvement. He told them he didn't know who Pam was and he didn't recall saying he'd killed her. A polygraph he submitted to was deemed inconclusive. Although police spent months trying to build a case against Michael Basso, in the end, they couldn't bring charges against him. They just didn't have the evidence. The reality was no one police talked to had a clue what happened to Pam. Lyle Police Detective Sergeant Gerald Schultz spent hundreds of hours on the case. His records indicate that he had dedicated 220-plus hours to Pam's homicide by February 13th, a month out but the case was going nowhere fast. A year later, in early 1977, the investigation took a turn away from people who knew Pam. Instead, they started to look at three men named Tom Dooley, Bruce Anderson, and Terry Lee O, whose last name I'm not stating because he's still alive. I'll just call him Terry Lee. I have to state here that the 1977 investigators did not keep any records of this avenue of the investigation. The only way that the modern investigators found out about it was there were some reports from a polygraph examiner who had performed lie detector tests on some of these guys. We still do not know. We have no idea how this entire story came across police radar. But what modern investigators were able to piece together after reviewing the scant files, the polygrapher's reports, and interview transcripts is as follows. A man named Davis G. told the following story to the 1977 investigators. 
He was driving around with his buddy Bill B. one night in early 1976, drinking beer and trying to find drugs to buy, when they drove up to College Road in Lyle. Davis said that Bill had to pee, so they pulled over to the side of the road. Up ahead, they observed a pickup truck, dark in color with the lights off, parked up the road from them on the same side of the road facing the same direction. Davis recognized the truck, and he knew who drove it. They watched, crouching down, as men Davis recognized as the truck owner, a guy named Terry Lee, and his passenger, Tom Dooley, exited the pickup, carrying something heavy between them. They carried the object across College Road and threw it over the guardrail on the west side. Then they got back in the truck and drove north. There may have been a third person in the cab of the pickup truck, Davis said. After they drove off, Davis and Bill pulled up where the pickup truck had been, and Bill looked over where the object had been thrown. Bill told Davis it was a person lying on the opposite side of the guardrail. He couldn't tell if the person was dead. They quickly drove away and agreed not to say anything, as Bill was wanted by the police for something else. Davis decided to lawyer up before submitting to the polygraph, and the interview was terminated. His crony, Bill B., was interviewed on January 3, 1977, at the DuPage County Jail, where he was being held on separate charges. In his interview, Bill told the same story as Davis. Sometime between 10 p.m. and midnight, they pulled over on College Road to pee, and they saw Tom D. and others throw something heavy over the guardrail and drive off. Bill looked over and saw a body, and he and Davis got the hell out of there and didn't report it. Bill also refused to submit to a polygraph without an attorney present. In an indication of how everyone in this neck of the woods knows each other or is interconnected in some way, Bill's nephew Larry was one of the kids who hung out at the Robertson house and knew Pam. Okay, so reprobates Davis and Bill reported that they saw some guys they knew chucking what looked like a body over the guardrail on College Road on some night in early 1976. But there was more. Bill, who could not read or write, was able to draw a map of the area of College Road he was talking about and put an X where he saw this supposed body. The X was in the exact spot where Pam was actually found. It was time for police to track down the guys in the pickup. Investigators' notes indicate that they confirmed there was a third man in the truck along with Tom Dooley and Terry Lee, and they believed he was Bruce Anderson, known as Egghead. The story that they got from all three was that they were driving around in Terry Lee's red Ford pickup truck on a night that investigators believed was the night Pam was killed. They cruised around College Road and other areas of Lyle drinking until after 1 a.m. They stopped on College Road so they could all pee, and at this time they saw a body lying on the ground. Police spent quite a bit of time running down this story because some of these guys were good suspects. Tom Dooley lived in Lyle at the time that Pam was killed, and he had quite a history. Tom was a violent drunk and had been involved in an actual fight with police officers, who were called to a white hen pantry to arrest him for disturbing the peace. His ex-girlfriend reported that he had beaten her more than 50 times, causing permanent damage. In fact, on one occasion, he strangled her to the point of unconsciousness, and when she came to, she had bruises on her throat and burst blood vessels in her eyes. He was arrested for this assault, but managed to slip out of the cuffs and steal the squad car he was placed in. Tom checked a lot of boxes. He had bragged to several people that he had killed before. He had beaten a homosexual man to the point of near death. He had rage issues and had gotten into innumerable fights. He had served time in prison twice. According to his ex, he had a sexual obsession with younger girls and sometimes preferred to ejaculate on her pantyhose-clad legs than via intercourse. In other words, he was a viable suspect in the murder of Pam Maurer. We have no police notes on whether they interviewed Tom Dooley. The same was true for Terry Lee. We do have polygrapher's notes from a lie detector test administered to the third guy, Bruce Anderson, a.k.a. Egghead, on January 11, 1977. He confirmed that he was the third man in the truck, but he denied having anything to do with Pam's murder. He said they had indeed stopped on College Road, but it was just so they could all pee. The truck got stuck on the ice, and they had to push it into the roadway. Bruce's results were inconclusive as to the question, do you know for sure who caused Pam Maurer's death? But all of this wasn't enough. Police did not have probable cause for an arrest. Tom, Terry Lee, and Bruce all walked.
1977 article in the Chicago Tribune addressed what was seen as a rash of murders of young women in the Chicago suburbs. From 1972 to 1977, six young female victims had been murdered and dumped in DuPage County alone. The number grew to 24 when murders in nearby counties in the 1970s to 77 time span were included. The small police forces from towns such as Lyle, Downers Grove, and Woodridge were ill-equipped to handle such large-scale murder investigations. Starting in December 1977, calls began for a Metro Homicide Squad, which would provide experienced investigative assistance to participating towns. This effort grew into a cross-jurisdictional investigative unit called the Felony Investigative Assistance Team, or FIAT, comprising 41 law enforcement officers who gave up their time off and worked without pay to try to bring these unsolved cases to resolution. The following year, in February 1978, the Chicago Tribune ran another article about the series of slayings, saying that in just the past two years, 20 girls and young women had been killed in the Chicago suburbs. The article says that, quote, in a disturbing number of the unsolved murders, the victims were last seen on foot, walking towards some destination a few miles away, end quote. Investigators weren't sure whether these victims were hitchhiking or were forced into cars, but they were all believed to have been picked up in vehicles and gotten out dead. Pam was just one of these women and girls whose cases remained open. Detective Loudon tells me that he knows Fiat investigated the Pam Maurer case, but he's unable to locate any records regarding the investigative work that was done. It's not clear that any records were kept, and if so, where they might be today. Pam's case had gone cold quickly. There was still activity a year after her murder, when police interviewed and polygraphed a number of suspects after learning of the supposed witnessing of the body dump by Dooley, Terry Lee, and Anderson. But none of that led anywhere. Everyone denied having anything to do with Pam's death. And although the tales of pickup trucks stopping in the dead of night to hurl heavy, human-sized objects over guardrails certainly raised eyebrows, there was simply no evidence tying anyone police spoke to to the homicide. This next bit was all reported in the local papers. In fall 1993, Lyle police obtained what they called new information in the Maurer case. This from the Chicago Tribune, quote, Woodridge Police Chief Stephen List said Lyle and Woodridge Police reopened the case after recent information about the slaying was obtained from several sources, end quote. As part of the new push, some people were re-interviewed. When I asked Detective Loudon to tell me what this new information was, he said, I wish I knew. No records relating to the 1993 investigation remain. This 1993 push to solve Pam's case failed. She had been dead for 17 years, and her family still had no answers. By 2001, DNA testing, non-existent in 1976, had become the standard in analyzing forensic evidence. Evidence from Pam's rape kit was still in existence in a refrigerator at the DuPage County Sheriff's Crime Lab. It was analyzed, and a complete DNA profile of the killer was developed and entered into CODIS, the National Criminal DNA Database. Investigators were very surprised when no hits were generated. Everyone believed by now that Pam's killer, who had managed to pull off a seamless abduction and murder, had done it before. But his profile was not in the database, and they were back to square one. Little did they know, by that point, Pam's killer had been dead for 20 years. The physical evidence from Pam's case was resubmitted for updated testing over the years. It's not clear exactly when this happened, but Pam's underwear was analyzed and a complete male DNA profile was developed from semen on the underwear. The case was re-examined in 2003, and then in 2013 there was another push to resolve the Pam Maurer case. Lyle PD Detective Sergeant Munson reopened the case and sent the suspected murder weapon, the hose, in for retesting. In October 2013, investigators also obtained a blood sample from the autopsy of Michael Basso, who had been killed in a car crash. If you recall, he'd been considered a top suspect back in the early days of the investigation. DNA and YSTR testing on the blood sample ruled out both Mike Basso and his brother Jim as suspects. The case stalled again. In 2019, Lyle Detective Chris Loudon and Detective Sergeant Lutz were amped up after clearing two of the three cold cases on the Lyle PD books. 
they decided to tackle the final cold case in the Lyle police files, the case known in the department as the Albatross. Many, many detectives before had taken the case on, and all had failed to solve it. Of course, I'm talking about the Pam Maurer case. Detective Loudon felt personally invested in the case because Pam and he were born just two weeks apart, and the first responding officer to Pam's scene had the same badge number that Detective Loudon now carried. It seemed serendipitous. The investigators reviewed the evidence and decided to reopen the case that March. They set about making a list of everyone of interest in the spotty case file. These were almost exclusively people in Pam's social circles and or men who were the subject of tips or rumors and who had not been eliminated via DNA. They started tracking down these approximately 15 people 40-plus years after Pam's death to interview them and ask for voluntary DNA samples. These included men like Tom Dooley, Bruce Anderson, Terry Lee, Davis G., Bill B., and Dale D. Detectives were also interested in R. Sloan, whose father owned the Texaco station, and James B., the Volvo driver on the Robertson Street that night. These two had gotten into a violent fight with Woodridge police at that gas station in 1980. They were both charged with aggravated battery of a police officer. Modern investigators took note of this and added them to the list. They started, though, with an uncle of Pam's on her father's side. Pam's sister had reported back in 76 that she and Pam would spend time at this uncle's house in Lyle, and he would watch porn with them naked. The sister said he molested both of them. 2019 detectives' ears perked up when they heard this, but... They quickly confirmed that he, the uncle, was in California at the time of Pam's murder. Eventually, he was eliminated by YSTR testing of Pam's dad, Lewis, his brother. While the investigators were doggedly tracking down all the men in the case file to obtain DNA samples, in January of 2019, Detective Loudon contacted Parabon Nanolabs to see what could be done to move the Maurer case along. The investigators had received permission and funding from Lyle officials to proceed with phenotyping. In March, a sample of the biological material from Pam's underwear was extracted and sent to Akisogen Lab for preparation of a SNP profile. The call rate for the sample was just over 90%. Parabon's Snapchat phenotype report was delivered on April 22, 2019. The report showed that the suspect was a white male of primarily Northern European ancestry, with 12% African ancestry. And there was a very high probability, 93%, that he had green or greenish hazel eyes, dark blonde to light brown hair, and few to zero freckles. The snapshot image of the man showed a man with an oval face, green eyes, and cheeks on the fuller side. Detective Loudon noted that only about 9% of the U.S. population has green eyes. He used the snapshot report to cull the list of remaining potential suspects in the case file he had to chase down for DNA. The men named in the file who were both high on the suspect list and met the physical criteria of the suspect were Bruce Anderson, Terry Lee, and Tom Dooley. Detective Loudon noted from the file that Bruce Anderson had admitted to riding around with Terry Lee and Tom Dooley in Terry Lee's red pickup truck on the night Pam was killed when Bill B. and Davis G. saw the other men dumping a body. Bruce had blonde hair and green eyes. This directly from Detective Loudon's report, quote, This information made Anderson a suspect. Included in Anderson's criminal history was an unlawful window-peeping arrest by Lombard less than three months after the Maurer homicide, end quote. Anderson started to look like a good suspect. He'd done several stints in prison for drug possession and burglary, and you just heard about the Peeping Tom situation, often a precursor to more violent sex crimes. He had mostly passed a poly back in 1977, but his results were deemed inconclusive as to whether he knew who had caused Pam's death. Anderson had died in 2009. The Los Angeles County Coroner reported him as an unclaimed death, having passed away from cirrhosis of the liver on a street in Van Nuys. Two slides were still in evidence in Los Angeles from Anderson's autopsy. Detective Loudon arranged for them to be mailed to the DuPage County Crime Lab to be tested for DNA. On to Tom Dooley. He was dead, too. Modern investigators spoke to a woman named Barbara that he was dating at the time of Pam's murder. She told them that Dooley liked to work on cars and had pushed her around in the two years they dated. 
At the request of Detective Loudon, Dooley's son, M, voluntarily came into the Lyle PD station and gave a buckle swab in June of 2019. When he turned to the last suspect, Terry Lee, Detective Loudon was intrigued. He was listed on a Lyle Police Department archives photo from 1983 as having blonde hair and hazel eyes. This from Loudon's report, quote, I compared his booking photo to the composite provided by Parabon from the DNA recovered in the victim's panties, and there is a resemblance. The Parabon snapshot phenotype report also said there was 93% confidence that the individual would have green or hazel eye color and a 98.4% confidence that he would have blonde or light brown hair. This information makes Terry Lee a possible suspect, end quote. Terry Lee also had a criminal history involving 13 arrests, including assault, burglary, weapons offenses, obstruction, invasion of privacy, and several violent crimes against women. Interviews with Terry Lee's ex-wife revealed that Terry Lee was very abusive to her, physically beating her with his fists and choking her to unconsciousness. This happened many times, typically when he was drunk, which was nearly all the time. The ex believed that he was definitely capable of killing someone. He was also a severe alcoholic. Police tracked down his brother, Sonny, and obtained a consensual DNA sample. At this point, Detective Loudon tells me, his money was on Terry Lee being the killer of Pam Maurer. A July 2019 lab report reads as follows, quote, The YSTR DNA profiles observed in the sperm-enriched fraction from the semen stain on Pam's underwear and exhibit 5A1, which is the vaginal smear, could not have originated from M. Dooley or Bruce Anderson. All paternally related male relatives of M. Dooley and Bruce Anderson are excluded. The report was the same for Terry Lee. His brother Sonny's sample excluded him. And Detective Loudon had obtained additional samples before he got the Green Eyes information, and those samples ruled out Dale D. and Bill B. None of these men named in the case file killed Pam. Investigators were going to have to turn to forensic genealogy. They made the risky decision to utilize the last bit of remaining biological evidence in Pam's case to make it happen. Parabon's August 8, 2019 forensic genealogy report contained the name of a potential suspect the company recommended police investigate further. Here's how they got there. The suspect's SNP profile was entered into GenMatch. There were some matches, but none of them were very high. The highest match, a woman with initials KR, shared 72 centimorgans with the suspect. This is in the range of a second cousin once removed to a fourth cousin, a pretty distant relative. According to Parabon's report, statistically, this relationship was most likely to be a third cousin once removed or genetic equivalent. K.R.'s ancestors were all originally from Norway, Germany, the Netherlands, Scotland, and Ireland. Her surname was Norwegian. The next highest match, a male with initials NP, shared only 47.9 centimorgans with the suspect. As in the case with match number one, statistically, this relationship was most likely to be a third cousin once removed or genetic equivalent. A third match of 45.3 centimorgans, a man with initials GJ, was a fourth cousin or even more distant relative. It wasn't a lot to go on, but additional matches could be aligned based on their own kinship relationships, which helped the genealogists figure out which of the suspect's genetic networks they belong to. For example, KR and NP, matches 1 and 2, shared a small amount of DNA, indicating that they were related to each other. NP's last name was Dutch, and the genealogist posited that he was related to match number 1, KR, through common ancestors from the Netherlands. But more significantly, the third match, GJ, and the 23rd match, initials CD, shared 1,615 centimorgans. They were half-siblings. The genealogist was able to determine that they shared a father. In tracking all of this, Parabon's genealogist noticed something. Even though the matches were all too remote to permit triangulation leading to the ancestral union from which the suspect was descended, there was some pretty glaring information in the family trees the genealogist was looking at. Following the Dutch ancestral line of the top match, KR, which was believed to be shared by the second match, NP, led the genealogist to the descendants of the marriage between Barteld Folkens and Gente Heisinger, 
who had seven children in the 1884 to 1902 time frame. One of their sons, Frank, moved to Cook County, Illinois, and some of his children with his wife, Georgie, moved to Lyle and Woodridge in DuPage County. This from the report, quote, The analyst discovered a family related to the top match living in very close proximity to the crime, some of whom had extensive criminal activity and are in the right position on the tree to be the subject. End quote. In fact, Parabon's report highlighted the four sons of an Arlene Fulkins born in 1931. She was one of Frank Fulkins children. Arlene had four sons with her husband Jerome, all of whom were the right age to be Pam's killer, and records showed addresses for the family in Downers Grove and Lyle, Illinois. Parabon's report then states, quote, further investigation of these included individuals is highly recommended. However, a previous sex crime committed by one of these individuals makes him of particular interest, end quote. They were referencing Bruce Lindahl. He had a criminal record for sexual assault, a history of addresses in Woodridge and Lyle, and green eyes. Bruce Everett Lindahl was born on January 29, 1953, in St. Charles, Illinois, to Mom Arlene and Dad Jerome. As we heard, he had three brothers, initials J, S, and L. His parents divorced when the boys were young. Mom Arlene moved to Florida in 1969 with young sons S and L, and the other two boys stayed in Downers Grove, Illinois, with their dad. Lindahl was not close with his family, and later in life, his friends noticed that he never talked about his mother or brothers. Of his father, Lindahl said he was strict and a disciplinarian. Lindahl graduated from Downers Grove North High School and afterwards received a degree that qualified him to work as an electrician. As an adult, Lindahl was 5'6", 135 pounds, with green eyes and light brown hair. Lindahl worked various jobs as an electrician, a blacktop installation tech, as a tech at North Illinois Gas, and so on. People who knew him said he was charming, outgoing, and friendly, socializing with others while engaged in hobbies he loved, like skydiving and racquetball. But there was another side of his personality, one with a hair-trigger temper, who often started fights he couldn't finish. He once attacked a police officer who was attempting to arrest him, and a friend told a story of Lindahl trying to beat up a much larger man over some petty beef. Lindahl lost that fight. Lindahl had few but not many male friends. He had many girlfriends over the course of his life, but he never married and had no kids that we know of. He was smooth-talking, manipulative, and exploitative toward the women he was involved with. His long-term girlfriend, Patricia Perkins, lived with him for a time, but left him and moved out months before he died. Yes, he died. I'll get much more into Lindahl's character as we get into his crimes, but first, let's talk about his death. In early 1981, 18-year-old Charles Huber had met Bruce Lindahl at the game room at the Gala West Bowling Alley in Naperville, Illinois. Both frequented the game room from time to time. Lindahl would talk to the teenagers who hung out there. On April 4, 1981, the two appeared to be together at the bowling alley. Police believe Lindahl asked Charles to give him a ride to Crest Creek Apartments on Ogden Avenue in Naperville under some pretense. This was the home of Lindahl's recent ex-girlfriend, Patricia Perkins, who had left him and moved into her own place. Apparently, Charles did drive Lindahl home. His car was later recovered at the apartment complex parking lot. Somehow, Lindahl lured Charles up into the apartment. Patricia walked into her living room around 1.45 a.m. and found an incomprehensible scene. Furniture was overturned, blood was all over, and two male bodies lay on the floor near her sliding glass doors. Charles Huber was dead on the floor. He had been stabbed 28 times with a kitchen knife. Many of the stab wounds would have been fatal on their own. But Bruce Lindahl lay on top of his victim, unmoving. He, too, was dead. In his stabbing frenzy, Lindahl accidentally cut himself, fatally. The knife he was using on Charles plunged into the killer's thigh and severed his femoral artery. Bruce Lindahl bled to death at age 29. His body was found lying on top of his victims, their commingled blood pooled all over the floor. Now Naperville Police Chief Robert Marshall responded to the scene as a rookie officer back in 1981. He told the Naperville son the crime scene was perplexing, and at first, police thought a third person had murdered both Huber and Lindahl. 
Quote, Lindahl was lying practically on top of Huber, Marshall said. From what I remember, there was a little bit of disarray in the apartment. I think there was a lamp knocked down. Some type of struggle had occurred. I asked Detective Loudon what on earth had happened with this whole story. He told me the following. Even though Patricia had left Lindahl weeks before and was living at the apartment on her own, she let Lindahl sweet-talk her into going out to dinner that night. He made sure she got really drunk and brought her back to the apartment and put her to bed. He told her to lock the bedroom door and that he was leaving. Well, he did leave. He left, picked up Charles Huber, and brought him back to the apartment. He wasn't supposed to have a key, but one was found in his pocket. Detective Loudon told me that he buys into the contemporary investigator's theory that this was all part of Lindahl's plan to kill both Charles and Patricia. He said, quote, The cops back then thought, and I think it makes sense, that he was going to kill Huber and then kill the girlfriend and blame the deaths on each other. End quote. Patricia had recently left him, and Lindahl wasn't going to let her get away with that. He was going to stab Huber, stab Patricia, and stage the scene somehow. But his plan went seriously sideways when he stabbed himself in the leg and died. So now, in 2019, Detective Loudon was eager to obtain a primary DNA sample from Bruce Lindahl to compare to that of Pam's killer. But as you just heard, Lindahl was dead. So Loudon started trying to get DNA from one of Lindahl's three brothers, any one of whom was the right age in 1976 to have killed Pam. But two of the brothers, S and L, had moved to Florida with their mom when she left town in 1969. When Detective Loudon contacted them, they both refused to give DNA samples. Lindahl's brother Jay was living closer to home in Plainfield, Illinois. Jay agreed to talk to the investigators, and Detectives Loudon and Arnold went to his home on August 15th. Jay wasn't totally upfront about his brother. He said that the two were very close, but he was unaware of any criminal activities on Bruce's part. That was a lie. Detectives knew for a fact that Jay had paid a lot to bail his brother out after an arrest for a 1980 abduction and rape. This from Detective Loudon's report, quote, Mr. Lindahl seemed defensive and sometimes argumentative during our talk together. I asked if he would be willing to provide a DNA sample, and he stated he would not, end quote. In fact, when they asked, he showed them the door. So, old Jay Lindahl was sticking by his brother and refused to give a DNA sample. That's okay. Four days later, at 6.05 a.m. on the 19th of August, then-LPD Sergeant Mark Lutz conducted a surreptitious trash pull outside Jay's house and grabbed some stuff from his recycling bin. A Miller light can was sent to the lab for testing. The DNA testing report on the beer can came back on September 4, 2019. The swabbing from the beer can was not consistent with the sample in evidence from Pam's killer. And Jay didn't have green eyes. He didn't do it. On November 6, 2019, at 8 a.m., it was time to dig Bruce Lindahl up. Detective Loudon had obtained permission from a judge to proceed with an exhumation of Lindahl. Representatives from the Lyle PD and the DuPage County DA's office were present to witness the event. Clarendon Hills Cemetery employees marked out the area mapped as Section B, Block A, Lot 10A, Grave 3, and a backhoe started digging. At 8.53, the backhoe made contact with the lid to the grave box. This was lifted at 9.23 and the coffin became visible. Although it appeared in decent condition, the hole was filled with, quote, foul-smelling black water, which had to be pumped out. The dripping coffin was lifted out at 10.04 a.m., and placed in the DuPage Cremations Company van. The van and the law enforcement caravan drove to the DuPage County Coroner's office, the van remaining in the line of sight of the officers the entire time. Once they were in a garage bay at the coroner's, the casket was opened with some difficulty. I watched the video. The tarnished, muddy, black casket was still pouring water out of a hole or two as they hammered at the opening. After all, it had been closed for nearly 40 years. I'm reading here directly from Detective Loudon's report, quote, Lindahl's face still had some tissue, as did his hands, although many of his bones were exposed. His legs were slightly drawn up toward his waist due to dehydration, end quote. Sorry, Detective Loudon, but that doesn't do it justice. To my shock, the video provided to me showed the actual body inside the casket. The bearded man inside lay in a foul bed of black, mold-covered, rotted casket fabric. His face resembled a cracked, flesh-colored mask with patches of black mold scattered on its fissured surface. 
The teeth protruded prominently as the skin was shrunken. One eye was cracked open, giving the visage a piratical appearance. But he was dressed in a formal brown suit and tie no pirate would be caught dead in. Dr. Hillary McGilligot, the DuPage County Coroner's Office chief pathologist, got to work pulling samples at 11.30. She pulled hairs from the scalp, took some facial hairs, clipped off and collected the fingernails, and severed and collected the right femur bone. This was cut lengthwise. The left femur was also collected and cut into cross sections. Dr. McGilligot removed four molars and one incisor from the skull and placed them in evidence. And, last but not least, Lindahl's entire skull was placed into a plastic tub for future evidence collection. He would be reburied without his head. The casket was resealed at 12.30 and was back in the ground by 1.29 p.m. Certain of the samples were designated for testing by DNA Labs International in Florida. Lindahl's right femur, hair samples, fingernail samples, and some teeth were sent to the lab via FedEx in a styrofoam cooler packed with ice packs. The rest went to the DuPage County Crime Lab for testing. On December 31, 2019, the report came in from the DNA lab in Florida. They had tested the teeth taken from Lindahl's remains. The report says, quote, Bruce Lindahl cannot be excluded as a contributor to the DNA profile obtained from the semen stain from the panties of Pam Maurer. The chance that an unrelated person chosen at random from the general population would be included as a contributor to this DNA profile is approximately one in every 1.8 quadrillion individuals, end quote. Forty-three years after her death, police finally knew who had killed Pam Maurer. This is the end of part one. You can continue to listen to part two right now.